we are talking about having firm foundations so that we can build magnificent lives. And we are going to carry on. Last week, we spoke about who is God as the most important foundation you'll ever lay in your life. We spoke about the fact that we start all of our discipleship journey with that truth. So if you do the one-to-one book and go through our, our discipleship or start in ignition, or even at Victory Training, there's a strong foundation of making sure that we all have a good idea of who God is. If you didn't hear that sermon, please get the podcast from last week or download it at some stage work through it in the one-to-one book. It is a very, very important foundation. Lord Jesus, I just pray for each person here, Lord, as we continue in the series, Lord God, would you come and arrest our hearts with your beauty, Lord? Lord God, I want to see you as you really are. I want everyone here to see you as you really are. The magnificence, the majesty, the beauty, the, the loveliness, the power of who you are. Lord God, we, we want to rest in the knowledge that you're in charge. I want to ask that everyone would leave here with a deep sense of peace in their heart, a deep sense of safety, a deep sense of well-being and of significance in their lives. Lord God, they would leave here with you in charge. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Can you feel that peace that settled when I prayed? Oh, my word, that's, that's Jesus just flexing a muscle. <laughs> I had this really great experience. We used to have, when Andrew and I first joined what is now Every Nation, we had this pastor, and he he spent half his time pastoring people, and the other half of his time he spent in the gym. So he had a lot of muscles, like big, large muscles. Still, if you meet him today, do you remember Bill Bennett? He came and preached here sometime, I think it was a year or two years back. But, I mean, he had, I mean, when he pulled the bicep, you know, if his his shirt was a little bit tight, I mean, it would rip the shirt. I mean, he was just like, he was like one of those guys. I mean, and so we, at one stage, went on a mission to Sierra Leone. And at that stage, Sierra Leone had just finished the, this gigantic war. You know, there were mercenaries all over the place. It was something, it was something to behold. It was like a movie, you know. It was just like you expected to turn a corner and there would be someone with a machine gun. I mean, it was just like a country in chaos, but a country rebuilding. And so we we arrived there and I remember at one t- time we were we had stopped at this little like cafe thing and we we're having uh, a meal there, and then we walked from there to some to go to where we were going to preach to kind of the church. It wasn't really a church; it was uh, it was a tent or a makeshift building. But we were going to go there and preach. And as we walked across this dirt street, now it's like law and order doesn't exist there. It was they were just starting to build it, but it was it was kind of a chaotic environment. And as we were walking across this so-called road. I could see out of the corner of my eye a whole lot. Now, I'm, the, I'm this little girl. I remember at the time I was wearing like pink trousers and this frilly shirt. I mean, I'm in this like war-torn nation dressed like a Johannesburg girl in my heels. You know, I'm just like, because that's what I know. And I'm walking across this road and I can see out of the corner of my eye some guys sitting at a table. And I, in my mind, now that I look back, it's like they got this look in their eyes, easy pickings. And they kind of stood up and I could just, and they, they kind of nudged each other and they started walking over to where where I was walking over the road. I mean, I'm young and naive. I have no idea of problems. You know, I'm just like, Jesus is with me. Everything's going to be okay. I just had no idea of the problems. My parents were at home praying like crazy and good good for them. 
But as I, as this, and they started walk, walking over, suddenly I, I turned to them and I, I, I said something, I can't even remember what it was. It was something like, can I help you? It was like a polite, nice thing. And they got this look of terror on their face and they just went in the other direction really, really fast. And I was like, hey, I'm kind of powerful in my pink pants and my frilly shirt. You know, it's like feeling, yeah. And then I turned around and there was Bill Bennett standing behind me, like very large, um, like flexing every muscle that he had and he had a lot. And I realized, gosh, it wasn't my great power that was scaring these guys. <laughs> it was his muscles. And, the st and you look, I had a look on his face like, you take one step further and I'm going to kill you. It was that kind of look. And um, we carried on. And, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about it much since then. But as I was sitting here and I was thinking about Jesus in charge, I was thinking about how it is like that. The Bible says in Philippians 2 verse 9 that he's been given the name that is above every name. What does it mean? It means that when we go around the, our life and the enemy tries to mess with us, he looks at us and says, ah, oh, that's easy pickings. I could get something out of that one. Jesus just comes and stands next to us. And, you know, he just, I don't think he has to flex many muscles. I think he could just, like, flex his pinky, you know, I think. And the devil goes running in the other direction. And sometimes we think we're doing really great things in our life, but really it's Jesus behind us just bulging a bicep, just letting the devil know, this is mine. I'm in charge here. I'm the name above all names. I'm the one in before whom everything must bow. And she's with me. He's with me. So we're going to be talking about the Lordship of Jesus Christ today. Rooted, immovable foundations in a changing world. How many of you have been to the beach once in your life? At least once. I'm sure many of you. If you haven't, Lord Jesus, help them. Get them to the beach. Everyone should go. But when I was young, my dad used to build sandcastles on the beach with us. And he would build the most fantastic sandcastles. I mean, we had turrets and we had buildings and we had tunnels and we had towers and we had uh, seaweed flags coming off the top and shell windows all the way around and moats. And I mean, it was just lovely, lovely, lovely castles. We would spend hours building those castles. It was like my favorite thing to do on the beach. And, you know, you could just, you could get the wet sand at the right place to make it really hard. And we, we just had a technique going that was really good. And I would always leave the beach and I would, you know, feel so gratified for that beautiful mark we had left on the beach, that castle. And we would come back the next day and to my great disappointment, it would be like nothing had ever happened there. You know, the sea had come in and all our hard work was just completely gone. I cried the first few times. After a while, I realized this is life. <laughs> That's what the sea does. That's what sandcastles do. They disappear in a day, so you can build a whole new one the next day. But I sometimes think this is kind of an analogy for our lives. That no matter how much work you put into your life, if there's not a foundation underneath it, if you're just building sandcastles, if you're decorating them, it doesn't matter how hard you work on them, if there's not a foundation underneath that sandcastle, 
the elements of this life, the storms of this life, the ordinary troubles of everyday existence are going to come and just wipe that thing flat. All of you have been around tall buildings that they've started to build, and you'll, you know that you, you walk past that building site, and there's just this huge cavernous hole where they're going to put the foundations. You must have heard it very often that the higher you want to build the building, the deeper you're going to have to build the foundations. And some of you have wondered why God sometimes seems so hard on you. Have you wondered about that? Like, you know, it seems like he doesn't let you get away with stuff. I mean, all the people around you seem to be getting away with stuff, and you just don't get away with stuff. Have you wondered about that? I've had a few complaining moments with Jesus about this. When God has his eye on you to build a beautiful, magnificent building of your life, he will dig deep. He will go into the foundations of your life and he will make sure that he has touched the very foundations of your understanding so that when he builds so significantly in your life, when he builds so satisfyingly to you, the wind and the waves of this life will not cause it to fall. It will stand as a monument to his grace in your life. And at the end of your life, when you stand and look back at what you have lived, you will feel this deep sense of gratitude and satisfaction. I lived well. I lived well. Amen. The Bible in Psalm 11 puts it like this. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, it doesn't matter how fantastically you build your life. If your foundation's on there, it's going to be washed away. There was this great day that the church was born. You can read about it in Acts 2. It was magnificent. The, the disciples were hidden in this room in Jerusalem praying. They had heard that something was going to come that was going to empower them to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. They knew it had something to do with the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what it was going to be. As they were praying, they heard the sound of a rushing wind, and they looked over at their the person opposite the room from them, and there was fire coming out of their heads. And then they began to speak, and they spoke words that were other languages that they didn't know. And they were like this magnificent, magnificent outpouring of the presence of God on them. And they were, this is it. This is what God has been promising, God's presence with us in power. And they, they knew this, was, this power was to be witnesses, to share the goodness and the grace of what God had done in their lives. So they went out of that room and into the city. And from around the city, everyone heard of what God was doing in their midst. And the whole city gathered, what is going on? Peter stood up at that moment to explain to them because they were saying, are these guys drunk? What is happening? We've never seen anything like this before. Peter stood up and he preached a sermon. And he told them, no, these are not drunk as you supposed. He didn't say this, but he answered their question that for thousands of years, the Jews had been had been looking for a Messiah. They had been looking for someone who would come and rectify the problems of this world, who, who would establish them, who would make their nation great again. And Peter stood up and said, this is that thing that you have been waiting for. This 
is the victory of Jesus Christ through the church in the earth. And then he made this powerful statement. He said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He was saying that Messiah that you've longed for, yes, he's here. But he isn't just Messiah. He's Lord and Christ. When Andrew came and proposed to me, he did it so well. I remember it so well. It was in my pastor's driveway. Don't ask questions. It was a really great place for it to be. In my pastor's driveway. My pastor and his wife left, and they said to me, wear something nice. They knew what was coming. So I did. I was, I was dressed very nicely. Andrew arrived with this huge bunch, bunch of flowers, and he got down on one knee. I'll tell you what he said in a moment. But imagine if he had said this. He didn't say this, but just imagine. Imagine if he said, my beautiful Carol, lovely, lovely woman of my heart, will you please Will you please be my dishwasher? I mean, I look, I can see the, the look of shock on all the ladies' faces. Men, do not do this. Do not do this. What, what if you'd said, Carol, those childbearing hips are so great. Will you bear my children? Guys, I, I, just to let you in a secret to all the men, if he had done it like that, I would have been in the opposite direction very, very fast. Very, very fast. But he didn't. He didn't. He got on his knees and he gave me those beautiful bunch of flowers. I still remember it. And he said to me, Carol, will you be my wife? I know. <laughs> that's, that's the right thing to do. Will you be my wife? Now, the amazing thing about it, I said yes, obviously. <laughs> you know, we've been married 30 years. That's a long time. Obviously, he did that proposal right. There was a lot right in all of that. And you know, since then, I most certainly have washed some of his dishes. <laughs> I've done dishes. I've done dishes. Early on in our marriage, he bought me a dishwasher. I was really grateful for that. I've borne his children, all three of them. I've even kept his, try, at least tried to keep his diary. You know, I've, I've done things from, I've chosen his clothes when I knew that he needed it. I've, you know, I've, I've done the, my best to be the most help possible to him. And he has done that to me also. But you see, when he took our relationship and he exalted me to a place of honor in his life, he got all the advantages of that. If he had tried to just get the advantages by first giving me, without giving me the privilege, he would have got nothing. Maybe a swift kick in the behind, you know what I'm saying? But how often, as Christians, are we wanting all the benefits from Jesus? You know, Jesus, come and change that spouse of mine. Come on, come and make that boss be a better person. Give me a million rand. Lord, just, just change the world. Make me, you know, just like a Cinderella moment. Just wave that magic wand and psh, everything's good. 
And yet we're unwilling to give him that place of influence in our lives. Here's the thing. Jesus cannot be your savior until he's your Lord. There's no such thing as Jesus just a savior. When we make Jesus Lord, he becomes our savior. Why is that? Because the reason you're not saved is because you're in charge. The whole fall of Adam and Eve was all about this. They wanted to be in charge. Jesus came to save us from our in-chargeness. The reason your life is a mess or that other person sitting next to you's lives is a mess. I know yours is fine, but that other person, the reason their life is a mess is because they're trying to be in charge. I'm going to tell you another story. I've got a lot of stories today, but imagine this. You're on an airplane, and you hear this crackly voice come through the intercom saying, I'm so sorry, ladies and gentlemen. You can hear the quiver in the voice. I'm so sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but our pilot has just had a heart attack, and our co-pilot, in trying to help him, bashed his head, and he's lying unconscious in the cockpit. Is there anyone here who can fly a plane? What are you feeling at that moment sitting in that chair? Anxiety. What if the sweet little old lady next to you puts up her hand and says, I have been a teacher for 45 years. I, I have read manuals everywhere. I can fly this plane. I mean, how are you feeling? Are you feeling any better? <laughs> no, you're feeling no better. I mean, at that stage, you're flapping your arms. I mean, your prayer life is going from zero to 10,000 overnight, or in an instant. But what if the person in front of you suddenly pipes up, hey, funny coincidence, but I'm the engineer who designed this plane. I can fly the plane. At that moment, what are you feeling? Intensely, I can see the stress on your faces. It's like, it's, it's, the story has a happy ending. Your plane doesn't crash. Everything's going to be okay. The engineer arrives and he flies the plane, probably better than the pilot. Because he's the most qualified person to fly that plane. There is one who is most qualified to fly the plane of your life. And it's not you. It's the one who made you. And his name is Jesus. He is the one most qualified to fly your life. Most of the anxiety we feel in life revolves around the fact that we're at the helm of our own life and we really don't know what to do. And there's one surefire solution. Move over to the co-pilot seat and invite Jesus into the pilot seat. And then you know, when he says, turn left, you just turn left. When he says, turn right, you turn right. When he says, sit down, you sit down. When he says, stand up, you stand up. Everything's going to be okay. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The main thing I want you to get out of the scripture is that Jesus is Lord. You don't get to make him Lord. He's Lord. 
He's in charge of this universe. He made it. He knows how it runs, and he's in charge of it. As I said right in the beginning, in Philippians 2 verse 9, it says that he's been given the name above all names. He, he was in charge beforehand, but then by virtue of the fact that he stepped down into our universe, and he became a man and won and defeated the enemy on his own turf, he's now Lord by virtue of being creator, and he's Lord by virtue of being victor. There is no place where he is not Lord. Everything must bow before the authority of Jesus Christ. And everything will bow before the authority of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you another story? Are you good with stories? You're driving down a road. You might be going a little faster than you should be going. And a little man in khaki uniform jumps out from the bushes and flags you down. How many of you stop? Please put your hand up. <laughs> please, please. If not, stop. The right thing to do is to stop. Why do you stop? Why do you stop? Why do you stop? I mean, your car's faster than him. You have more power than him. I mean, you could ride over him in a second. You could push him out. You could beat him. I mean, there's so many, so many solutions to this problem. You know that by stopping, you're getting a fine. It's not going to be good for you, but you stop nonetheless. Why? Because this man is not standing there on his own authority. This man is standing there under the authority of the South African government. If you don't stop, he will simply appeal to his higher authority, and the government of South Africa will come knocking on your door. And it will involve more than a fine. It will involve a jail sentence. So it is when I go through life, when I'm under Jesus' authority, when he is Lord of everything, when I stand in front of an impossible situation, if that impossible situation doesn't stop, I don't have to fight with that impossible situation. I don't have to argue. I don't have to arm wrestle. I don't have to try harder. I don't have to make it happen. I simply stand aside and say, say I'm under his authority. Lord, what do you say? What do you do? He's the name above every name. Everything must bow before him. Jesus is Lord. We don't, we don't make him Lord. We simply either accept him as Lord or reject him as Lord. My advice is accept him as Lord. So Jesus is Lord. There's this really beautiful story that Jesus tells in Luke 6. And he starts off like this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I mean, that's a good question. It's a good question. I suspect that he's asking all of that, us that from time to time. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He carries on and says this. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Are you getting pictures of my castle on the beach? And this foundation that Jesus is talking about is Lord, Lord. That Lordship means 
Lordship means this. When I, when I call Jesus my Lord, it means that he is first in authority. I do what he says. I do what he says. Why is this so powerful? I read a book recently. It's called Why States Fail. Why Nations Fail, sorry. Why Nations Fail. And it was two researchers. And they went about and they researched many nations. And they looked into why some nations made it and one nation, why some nations failed. They looked at the political systems. They looked at the economic systems. They looked at the different judicial systems. They looked at how the, the culture operated in those countries. And they could only find one decisive characteristics. Characteristic, should I say. Nations that failed had leaders, influential people, market leaders, pol pol political leaders, who in that environment, they called them extractive economies. They, these influential people took money from the economy for personal gain. And without fail, if that was the characteristic of leadership in that nation, the nation failed. Nations that succeeded, the leaders, the influential people of that nation, this whole category of, of people, instead of taking money for themselves, earned money and then siphoned it back into the economy for the growth of the economy and the growth of people. What has this got to do with Jesus is Lord? It means that when we are in charge for our own gain, when human beings are in charge of their, of their lives to try and get the most they can out of it, your life is going to fail. When you're trying to extract for yourself stuff from your environment, it's going to fail. But when Jesus is Lord, and instead of extracting for yourself, you are hearing from him and you are giving back into that environment. When he's in charge, not you're in charge, you will succeed. You might have temporary uh, setbacks, but overall, that environment will go from strength to strength. This is one good reason to have Jesus first in authority. It's not the only reason. Paul wrote this, this scripture in Galatians 2 verse 20. You know, there are certain scriptures in the Bible that I just wish weren't there. Are there do you have any of those? Do you have them? You know, it's like you're reading and it's all lovely. Jesus is feeding 5,000 and it's beautiful. He's, the sick are just, you know, having wonderful things happen to them. Everything's lovely. And then you're reading and you come to Galatians 2.20 and Paul makes the statement. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Ow. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I, I live now by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. I have been crucified with Christ. 
What does it mean to have Jesus first in authority? It means that I have taken all of my life and I have surrendered it to him. I've said to him, as you went to the cross, so I, so I go with my whole life and I, I say, God, it's all yours. I surrender, I give it up. And as Jesus was resurrected on the other side, we find ourselves resurrected in him in the fullness of life and in, in glory and blessing. And we find now that he's in charge, everything comes into place. Everything comes into place. Jesus is first in authority. You know, all of our lives have a few thrones. Have you noticed that you have a few thrones in your life? I ask myself this question all along, who's in charge? When I face situations, I ask myself, what, what words, what, what voices am I listening to? Who's determining my next step? And you know, praise the Lord, often it's Jesus, but sometimes it's some of these things. Sometimes it's not Jesus determining what my next step is, but it's the opinion of the people around me. Sometimes it's my desire to not be poor. And listen, let's all not be poor. Let's do that. I think Jesus has that same ambition for all of us. But you know, sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, Lord, I, I, just, I just want to be comfortable. Sometimes it's fear of the future that governs how I live. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why do these voices speak louder than the voice of our pilot who knows exactly how we should live, exactly what is best for us, exactly what will bless us the most, who has nothing but good in mind for you and me? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? How about self-preservation? As one of the lords that we, we serve very well. What is self-preservation? Trying to keep everything nice and comfortable for me. I've got something to tell you. God is not as interested in your comfort as you think you, he is. He's far more interested in your growth than he is in your comfort. When you hang on to comfort when you hang on to just personal safety you will seldom get everything that God has for you a famous theologian once said this he said ships are safe in the harbor but that's not what ships are made for we can hang on to the harbor and miss out of the glory of the adventure that God has for us Colossians 1 verse 13, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says this, that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has translated into the, us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. What does that mean? He's destroyed evil. He's destroyed sickness. He's destroyed de death. There is nothing that you need ever fear from here on out. What is the worst that the devil can do to you? What is the worst he can do to you? He could take your life, but he can't really do that because you'd be resurrected in newness of life and live in eternal glory forever. There is nothing, nothing but goodness in your future. 
There will, there will be storms and there will be difficulties, but you have a pilot at the head of your plane who will fly through those storms in a way that will bring you stronger and better on the other end. How about self-determination? I want to do what I want to do. None of you have ever, I know this is for the person sitting next to you, so just nudge them and say, this is for you. I want to do what I want to do. Colossians 1 verse 20 says, 27 says this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not how many degrees you have, the hope of glory. Not in who's your boss, the hope of glory. Not in how much money you make, the hope of glory. Not in getting that perfect life partner, your hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, when I just jump back to self-preservation there, you know what can indicate to you how much or how fully you are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Anytime you're feeling fear and anxiety, it means that part of your life is not securely under His Lordship. It means that there's self-preservation at the helm of that area of your life. How about when you feel stress and striving? At that moment, self-determination is at the helm of your life, not Jesus. How about when you feel guilt and condemnation? That's the third self that often sits on the throne of our life, self-condemnation. Guilt and shame are an indication that you forgot who was in charge. You forgot for a moment that Jesus is in charge. And of course, there are things he wants you to change in your life. Of course, he's going to call you to repent from certain things. Of course, he's going to change things and make things different. But there is no guilt and there is no condemnation because he said in 1 John 1 verse 9, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed your sin from you. He has healed your brokenness. And when we feel shame and guilt, there's an indication in our hearts something else is sitting on the throne of my life. Let me ask that and put Jesus back. Let me hear what he has to say. And let me do that. So Jesus is first in authority. Jesus is Lord means two things. That he's first in authority. It also means that he is first in our affections. Did you know that you can train your affections? When I was a teenager, I used to dance for a professional company dance company, and it was very essential that we were very skinny. This meant that I had to eat very little. I loved tea with copious amounts of milk and sugar in it. I mean, who's with me here? I mean, if you're going to drink something, make it taste nice. But I wanted to be skinny. 
So I cut out all milk and all sugar and I drank my tea black. Have you tasted black tea? Guys, have you tasted black tea? I mean, there is nothing, I mean, I don't feel like this anymore, but at the time there was nothing good about it. It was just colored water. And I just drank it because I had to drink something because everyone was drinking something. But I had a goal in mind, and so I trained my taste buds. I tra- I, I, as I took that sip of that wet, weak, lukewarm nothingness, I said to my taste buds, this is good. <laughs> I did. And, you know, it took about a year, and suddenly I liked black tea. I trained my affections. You can train yourself to love Jesus more. Did you know that? Did you know that? You know how I've trained my affections to love Jesus more. One day I just began to imagine for a moment what it would like to be like to hang on that cross. I heard about this great, this great preacher from many, many years ago, and he used to do this. He used to imagine himself taking Jesus off the cross. Like after Jesus has died, someone had to take him down from the cross. And he would imagine himself actually taking Jesus off the cross. I mean, think about that for a moment. I can't even say it without crying. What what was he doing? He was training his affections to love Jesus. When I'm hit with fear and anxiety, I turn my attention to the goodness of God. What am I doing? I'm training my affections to love Jesus. When someone stands next to me and tells me about how terrible this world is and how everything's going bad, I turn and I say, no, God has a plan. What am I doing? I'm training my affections to love Jesus. When people stand in front of me and ask for prayer for impossible situations, I I refuse to look at the impossibility of it and I look at Jesus and I say, nothing is impossible for him. What am I doing? I'm training my affections to love Jesus. Jesus is first in our affections. Matthew 10, 37 to 30. I'm going to do some tough scriptures today. Are you all good? Can you all just take a deep breath? Say, Jesus loves me. Matthew 10, from verse 37, Jesus said to the people following him, if you love father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. He went on and he said, if you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. Of course, he wasn't telling you to abandon your family. Don't do that. But what he was saying is that if you want your family to work well, I must be first. If you want your life to go well, I must be first. And then I will put everything else in its correct place. When Jesus is Lord, you in fact love your love your parents more, you love your children more, but you don't love them more than you love him. Matthew 22 verse 37 says the greatest commandment of all is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, because it puts everything in its place. Jesus is Lord means that he's first in our He's first in authority over our lives and he's first in our affections. You know, I'm going to use some marriage illustrations, so you're all good with that. But you know, there are times 
I really want to tell Andrew that he's doing things wrong. I mean, sometimes I do. But sometimes, you know, I'm just mad. I mean, I want to, you know, the things that come to my mind are not great. I want to, I, I, I want to, I want to be violent in very ungracious ways. I want to say things that are not Christian. I want to pout. I want to sulk. I want to go the other way. I want to slam the door. Am I, I, am I all by myself? Not just in your, oh, some people are saying definitely, okay, no guilt and shame. Lord Jesus, I confess my sin to you. You're faithful and just to heal me. But it may not be in your marriage. It may be in other places. You're tempted to just have a tantrum. You're tempted to just be bad. Why? Why don't I do that? Why don't I do that? Because Jesus is first in my affections. And when I feel that coming, I say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, if I do that, I will violate my relationship with you. It's not even my relationship with the people around me that governs my behavior. The reason I'm kind to you is because you're fabulous. And also, because if I'm not kind to you, that would not please Jesus. He's first in my affections. And that relationship governs everything. Last story before I close. 1732, long, long, long before you were born. 1732, two young German gentlemen. The first surname was Dober, and the second one sermon, a surname was Nietzschemann. And I've been practicing it all day because if I get it wrong, it'll be Doberman and Nietzsche, and I just felt like that would not be great. So I was trying not to fall into that trap. So it was Dober and Nietzschemann. And they found Jesus as young men, and they had consecrated their entire lives to be with him. They had gone to live with a small community in the east of Europe, in a place called Moravia, under the leadership of a man called Count Zinzendorf. And they lived in a small community that became known as the Moravians. They set up in that community a prayer meeting that lasted nonstop day and night for 100 years. I mean, it was a powerful community of people just living all out for Jesus. They were the first missionary movement in existence. In the 1700s, they started sending out missionaries to far-off lands, places other people wouldn't go to, to bring the gospel to those places. And these two particular gentlemen had had their hearts ravished by Jesus. He had become everything to them. And they put up their hands one day and they said this, we have heard about slaves in the West Indies that have been taken from Africa and have been forced to work on plantations there. There is no one to reach them because no one is allowed into those plantations except slaves. We want to sell ourselves into slavery so we can go and reach them. They headed off and they sailed out of the port of Copenhagen that same year. And as they went, it is reported that they cried into the wind that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. That's a life with Jesus first in affections. God, I'm not looking after me. 
Everything of my life is orientated towards your glory, your mission, the hope that you bring. They stayed there for a number of years. They didn't stay there very long, but the Moravians that followed and, and went to that mission field, they had baptized 13,000 people before one other missionary arrived. 13,000 people. They would not have heard the name of Jesus had two men not stood up and said, our life does not count. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. 13,000 people stand in heaven today because those two men said yes. They said, Jesus, you're above all else. I'm delighted to say that God is not asking you to sell yourself into slavery in, in that form. But I am telling you that he is saying to you that he wants to be first in everything. And he wants our knees bowed before him. That when he says go, we go. When he says stop, we stop. When he says right, he's, we go right. That our comfort is dethroned from the lordship of our life and Jesus Christ is placed there because we can trust him. Because he is the name above every name. And wherever we go, he will stand behind us, flexing the muscles and saying to the enemy, this one is mine. This one is mine. This one is mine. Amen. Let's pray.